Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 322nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Kent Scornia. Kent is the founder of Crilogy, an independent REA based in St. Louis, Missouri, that oversees nearly $2 billion in assets under management for 1,800 client households. What's unique about Kent, though, is how to grow advisors within Crilogy, he created an internal training system that focuses on mentorship, education, and especially the core activities that newer advisors need to learn to gain deeper knowledge of financial planning, and more importantly, to get started in growing their own book of business over time. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Kent developed the Crilogy Advisor Development System, or CADS for short, a proprietary training system that pairs newer Crilogy advisors with senior advisor mentors to support the advisor's client base while training on and practicing the activities it takes for them to grow their own book of business and eventually become senior advisors themselves. How Kent and his firm implemented a 021FA activity tracking sheet based on a combination of the concepts from the book Zero to One by Peter Thiel and the 75 Hard Fitness Challenge, which compiles a list of fundamental activities that newer advisors in the CADS program should focus on with the intent that much like building muscles, the scheduling and repetition of the activities will build their business development muscles. And how to help train and grow newer advisors even further, Kent and his firm have created Crilogy University, a once-per-week training session open to all advisors of the firm that highlight financial planning concepts with the curriculum designed by an internal wealth intelligence committee that also teaches as in-house experts. We also talk about how senior advisors at Crilogy can take advantage of the CADS program to gain support for their own books of business and eventually find a successor for their practices when they want to retire. How Crilogy has established two director of advisor development roles to oversee the training and advancement of newer advisors in the CADs so that senior advisors can mentor new advisors in planning and business relationships, but don't have to be responsible for managing the associate advisor themselves. And how Crilogy offers liquidity options for its senior advisors to sell a portion or all of their book of business to Crilogy while still remaining as an advisor under the Crilogy umbrella and continuing to serve their clients while taking some chips off the table. And be sure to listen to the end, where Ken shares how Crilogy sought to instill a values-based approach in the firm that focuses on dedication, abundance, leadership, and respect to create alignment with all employees of the firm, provide excellent service to clients, and retain employee talent. Why Kent believes a good way for newer advisors to find the right firm for them is to interview other newer advisors at the firm they're seeking employment to understand if the firm is really a good choice and truly cares about advisor growth and development. And why Kent feels that even though a successful firm is dependent on growth and achieving goals, success for him is all about building relationships with clients and employees and those around him and seeing how those relationships impact the lives of so many as they grow and find success of their own. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Kent Scornia. Welcome, Kent Scornia, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, great to be here, Michael. I'm I'm really looking forward to the discussion today, and 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 talking a bit about recruiting and and developing advisors. 
uh, you know, I, I, I find there's this, I don't know, the, this shift in the industry over the past, I guess, particularly 10 or 10 or 15 years that if you go back to the, as I'll put it in air quotes, the, the old days, advisors were uh, hired in from scratch, told to sell products. If they were good at it, then they survived long enough to learn how to do financial planning and wealth management because they like qualified their sales contracts and met their product minimums to to stick around. Uh, and if they didn't, they they were just gone in six or twelve or twenty four months. And and it was it it was a very like high churn, high turnover. Companies generally were willing to do it because, frankly, if someone came in on commission and didn't succeed, you didn't pay them anything, so it didn't cost that much money, right? To, to to lose most advisors, and if they turn out to be good, then you would hold on to them and 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 pay their commissions and grow them from there. But it was this incredibly to me like painful high churn way to approach advisor recruiting and advisor development. And I know you've built a firm for the better part of 15 years now that is also really focused on on advisor recruiting and advisor development, but a, a little bit of a different uh, approach than than just the pure like high volume churn, hopefully 20% of them last for three years, uh, uh, kind of traditional approach of the industry. And so I think I'm just, I'm really excited to talk about what because I would think of it as just what more modern advisor recruiting and advisor development looks like as we we try to build businesses where we bring in newer and younger advisors that can actually stick and succeed and grow a client base and build a business and not just have this constant flow of high high turnover and and losing a lot of good talent. Yeah, I would say I'm just I'm, I'm I love this conversation. I've loved it. For a long time, I, you know, developing talent and investing in uh, new new talent in our industry is a passion of mine for sure. So I'm excited about today's conversation. Thanks for having me too. So I, I think just to kick this off and and dive right in, can you tell us just about the advisory firm as it exists today? So we have some some context for the business. And then we can just jump in further and really talk about like how advisors have come into the organization and grown with the business. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, sort of the glamour stats, right? You've got uh, a couple billion in assets. Uh, we've been around since 2009. Um, you know, we have 30 um, what we would call full-time advisors. Uh, but if you really count sort of the, the CADS, Crilogy Advisor Development System Group, uh, you, you throw on there another 10 to 14 um, in training. And uh, so somewhere around the 40 to 45 advisor range. Um, you know, we've been, we, we, Financial planning is the core of who we are, CFB-based. Uh, you know, our portfolio management team manages all portfolios in-house for our advisors. Uh, it's kind of a sort of an in-house TAMP, so to speak. Uh, we do uh, tax planning as well. So we have a tax group. We will do individual tax returns for our clients, some trust work. Uh, and then we also have an affiliated company, Crilogy Law, who uh, are one of our partners, owns that, and uh, we do in-house estate planning. So we try to have all experts in-house for our team, for our uh, wealth advisors, so that they can better serve their clients. So that's kind of the commercial, uh, so to speak, of uh, kind of where we are today. So so on the staffing end, I think you'd, you'd said 30 full-time advisors, 14 more in your uh, advisor development program, so 40, 44-ish. Um, advisors in total. How much? Like, what's the rest of the staff structure around it? Like, how many people in total are under the the organizational umbrella? Sixty four. Uh, so the rest of the staff is going to be um, comprised of 
you know, uh, what we call well services managers. So people who are interact, uh, who are interacting with clients and advisors on a regular basis, practice managers, those sort of folks, uh, CFPs, full-time CFPs, and then our back office operations. So we have a trading team. Um, or we have our back office operations teams that are interacting with Schwab and Tamarack uh, in terms of uh, just sort of processing. It's really kind of a half step between our advisor advisory teams and uh, our custodian uh, custodians to, uh, you know, sort of help push, uh, you know, operations through. So that's the rest of the of the staff, and then those those advisors, and this is where we can we can start to get into a little bit of the of the training and development. You know, it's really sort of a spectrum of you know, there's it, it's almost hard to de- to determine when an advisor is on that team slash staff and when they actually become an advisor. Uh, so there's it's it's not so black and white of like oh you're an advisor at this moment in your life it is a it is such a long journey for our advisors uh, to become advisors and how we how we train and develop them and it's almost they just sort of morph into this senior wealth advisor over a number of years uh, based on our training program so that's why you sort of heard me you know not really become a- yeah. a- absolutely accurate on the uh, sort of number of advisors just because of the way we train and develop so are they are they starting out in more like operations support oriented roles and moving into advisors over time? Because I'm I'm just struck relative to call you know sort of calling it forty something advisors and sixty something total staff, which which puts you at you know basically two two advisors for every other one non advisor is a, a like a, a not a very heavy operations overhead portion of the firm. So is that because you guys are just leaner on the operations side, or do the advisor development folks support in some of that as they're as they're going through their learning growth development journey? Great question. In fact, it feels like we're actually more heavy on the support side. But the advisor development, the the, the CADS program and the advisor development program uh, that we we say to them, you have two jobs. Your first job is to support the team that you're on. And your second job is to control your own destiny, which is, you know, going out and and building your book of business and building your client base. And uh, the first job is the most critical, but the second is, um, you know, it's all about how far you want to take your career. So, so in a sense, it sounds like we're, you know, very heavy on the advisor and short on staff. It's actually the opposite. We actually have advice, you know, a lot of staff relative to the advisor, probably closer to that, you know, over one staff per advisor type okay. ratio. Because because the the fourteen folks in the CAD are are in that growth transition, they're doing more support work initially. They'll become advisors over time, and eventually, you you flip flip the switch on them, as it were. That's exactly right. And then you you had mentioned wealth services managers. In the in the middle of that as well. So what what is that role? That's the, the 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 person supporting the senior wealth advisor, interacting with clients, um, setting appointments, doing you know, putting together reviews, um, you know, money movements, those sort of things. Okay, so at least for some firms, it's kind of client service managers, like just that's exactly being, right. being that being that middle role. That's right. So. So how do you just when you've got this many advisors how like how do you staff those how do you even assign them like is this a a centralized team that rotates around is this like you know every ex advisors gets a wealth services manager to support them 
how, yeah, as how you can you imagine, that? you know, our, our history is the core of, of where we started was just advisor development. I, you know, as I told the story before, you know, I started the farm at 33. My junior advisor was 24 and my, my assistant was 26 when we started. Uh, and we, and we just hired a bunch of young advisors. Uh, the core of what we do or where we started is uh, that junior training program. Um, but you know, that was 2009. We have advisors who have um, books of business of 150, 200 million in assets. And as you can imagine, the staffing of those practices are much more robust. Uh, you know, one or two well-service managers, a full-time CFP who may not be on the CADS program. Um, and, and, and that is their career. Uh, and then you might have, um, you know, even more people staffed to that to that group. And then you might have an advisor with, you know, 30 million in assets and they share a W, you know, what we call WSM, well services manager. So for us, it's really a matter of, you know, where is the need? How robust is the practice? And, um, and then if, as advisors grow, it's, it's, you know, we help them invest in their practice in terms of personnel. I was going to ask, like, with that, with that structure, you know, the, I know the challenge for a lot of firms, essentially who, who pays for what, like do the, does the, does the firm cover the the WSM client service manager kind of role? Does the advisor cover it out of their pocket? Do you you know adjust payouts or dollars up or down so that they can then cover the the person? Like how how do you how do you actually figure out who who gets who gets what WSM support and and how it gets paid for? I love this question, Michael, because <laughs> it comes up all the time it's where the dollars start to get split um mm-hmm. we pay it's all, it's all easy until until you get to the dollars part. exactly right exactly exactly uh no we pay up until a point and then uh pay increases and then the advisor gets to control some of their budget so it's a hybrid and um but Again, it's about the size of the practice and what the advisor wants. And what we try to do is cater to each advisor's goals and really their personality. Some advisors do not want to deal with a P&L or, you know, dealing with right. with, with payout, um, you know, higher payout and lower or, um, you know, sort of more responsibility on the yep. expenses. Some advisors want turnkey solution. And, and you know, Michael, I always tell people that, uh, you know, I look at a lot of P&Ls because we bring in senior advisors and we buy uh, firms, um, I've seen a lot of P&Ls and most advisors take home between 50 and 65 points. And you can slice and dice it however you want. If you want more control over your P&L, uh, if you don't, like in the end, you're going to take home between 50 and 65 points. And um, it's really up to the advisor and how they want to how they want to deal. What we say, though, because our you know, our passion is growing advisors, not only from, you know, scratch, which is, you know, entering the career and becoming, you know, having a book of 50 to 100 million, which we've done, uh, and even 150 and 200 million, but also advisors who transition to us who are senior advisors and need an, a junior advisor to be injected into their practice to add growth. And, and uh, for us, if you want to really grow as an advisor, which is what the kind of advisor we want to surround ourselves with, um, dealing with the minutia of your own P&L takes you away from actually growing your practice. And, uh, so the advisor who best fits us is probably someone who, who, who cares more about growing their practice and not about, you know, squeezing out an extra two or three points and figure out how they're going to pay for an assistant. So, so now help me understand further, just this, I think you called it the CAD, Krillogy Advisor Development. 
program. Yep. So system, yep. Curology Advisor Development System. System. Uh, so CADs with an S for system. Yep. So so help us understand further just how how this works in practice. So if you're a new if if, if you are an advisor, or actually if you're not an advisor, let's say you're a um, a career transition person and you want to become a financial advisor. And we have a position on a team open. I think this is really critical that uh, we don't just hire just to hire. There needs to be a CADS position open for a senior advisor uh, in order for us to fulfill the need. If um, if you become an advisor, first and foremost, you obviously get licensed or the old school classic uh, getting licensed. And then you get acclimated to your team. But we are immediately within the first 12 to 24 weeks are going to help that advisor start to create uh, their network and um, start to create their brand and not a brand that is like, you know, I'm a, I'm going to focus on doctors all of a sudden because I've been in the business for six months. Uh, it's really more about um, learning with the senior advisor, helping support that senior advisor, getting acclimated to the business. And then we start to help them just build the network, go out and see people, go out and meet people, go out and Tell the Crilogy story. Tell the story about how you, uh, you and your your senior advisor work and how you work together. Every week we have trainings. We have Crilogy University, and Crilogy University happens every Monday, and it's virtual and it's also live in our in our training facility here. Um, but we start to educate them on the on the specific topics uh, inside our our um, our industry, and it can range from anything. I mean, you know, we've even had Michael Kitsis. Uh, podcast run through there so uh you know it is a you gotta have a long long session for that university well i think we split that up that's that's fair we can we can cover a couple of weeks in ongoing (laughs) exactly sometimes you gotta fill it you gotta fill it um but you know and then they also get an in-house um what we call director of advisor development and that person is meeting with that uh cads every week and effectively it's a mentor it's a manager um, and it's a person helping them understand what fundamental activity do they need to be having every week in order for them to build a successful advisory practice. And one of my friends in the industry uh, said to me a long time ago that the, the activity you run, just meetings, not even what we would call a fact find or sales meeting, just activity. The activity you run in the first 36 months of your career will be the activity you run for the rest of your career. You know, a new advisor and a a senior advisor by nature, uh, a senior advisor is going to land new clients. If they're a growth-oriented advisor, they're going to land new clients because uh, they run activity. And sometimes that activity is taking care of current clients, but other times just being out and about and, and, uh, and, 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 and seeing people. And uh, we wholeheartedly believe in that. You have to have a massive amount of activity early on in order for you to create the momentum and the inertia to continue that throughout your entire career. So we, we focus a lot on activity uh, with, our, with our advisors. Uh, you'll hear that a lot. Action and movement. Uh, be courageous. Uh, go out there and see folks. And if we made the right hire and that person's the right fit for the industry, over time, they'll start to get you know a client here or a client there. And um, you know, let's be honest. I mean, just even back in the old days, those advisors who who um, made it in that old wirehouse world that you spoke of, uh, they made it a lot of times because they had a friend or a family member or multiple family members that sort of became their first client and helped them get through the the first couple of years. That happens sometimes with us, but not all the time. I've, I mean, for us, it's more of a matter of 
uh, just making sure the advisor is handling the right fundamental activity every every month and over time it'll it'll work the best part about the RA space and I would this is when I get really excited the RA space because of the recurring revenue feature allows and should allow a firm like ours to be really patient with someone in their early on in their career and I think a lot of the time us senior advisors we are impatient with junior advisors because we forget how hard it was to build this marketing, business development, relationship muscle early on. It's just really difficult and you have to spend a lot of time consciously thinking about this business development muscle uh, and developing it in order for you to create a practice. And senior advisors, uh, we, we lose patience with junior advisors because they don't automatically have that muscle. And that muscle doesn't just automatically show up. I've never seen it happen. It, it, it has to be developed in some way, shape, or form, and you have to spend time developing that piece. And so that's why you're, you're very focused on just activity, as, as oppo- I guess, as opposed to results. It's not in the first year, like, show me how many clients you brought in because almost no one really has that muscle developed in a meaningful way. And, and the results aren't necessarily going to be clear yet, but show me your activity. I can definitely measure and look to and evaluate activity to say, are you doing the things that set up long-term success? And let's make sure you're, you're putting in that level of activity. That's exactly right. And again, this is, this is their second job. This is their control your own destiny job. Their first job is to support the team that they're on and the advisor that they work with and the WSM that they work with. So this, you know, it's not an easy endeavor by any stretch. But, um, you know, if they do a great job on sort of their day-to-day, right, which is their teamwork, and then they do, they do the proper activity on their, uh, on their own personal business, uh, they will make it. You just have to give them time and they have to put in the effort. So, so talk to us more about just activity. I know that the, the activities that matter, the activities that count, like what what kind of activity are you are you steering them towards, and and what do you actually measure or or track? Okay, so this is where um, this is where it gets fun. Um, we've created. Uh, are you familiar with the seventy five hard? Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, it's yeah, exercise program. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like intense exercise program. You like you go out every day for. 75 days and and have to do i forget it's a series of yeah, like like two workouts go, a day go, two and, workouts yeah, yeah. go outside eat right. eat certain things okay right yeah 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 so uh we've we've created a a, a an application it, it's not fancy by any stretch it's called, it's a google doc that we have in-house and it's uh it's called zero to one fa and the reason why we call it zero to one it's built off the book by peter teal zero to one which is talks about technology startups the most difficult thing to do is to create an advisor from scratch. So zero to one, that's where we got this thing. And and um, in that little Google Doc, everybody has on their phone, and uh, it has, you know, the date. And then what we we talk about, like, sort of fundamental things that they should be doing. So first and foremost, 10-minute team check-in. So everybody should know what they're doing. Uh, so everybody understands exactly, you know, what's happening with their team. And then accomplish three things for their clients. This literally, Michael's a checkbox, whether you complete or not. Uh, I add one new person's name to my call list. Uh, that would be another. Uh, and then I set one face-to-face networking, prospecting, or other relationship building meeting. I had one in-person meeting. And then I read 10 pages of industry material. And then they mark down their 
their own in their personal business, their assets under management. So, you know, I, I, I would advise people that they can make up their own, you know, seven or eight checklist thing. But the most critical piece here is consistent activity. So getting back to your question about, um, you know, for example, like one of them is I added one new person's name to the call list. So, you know, gosh, how do I add a person's name to the call list? Well, really what you need to be doing is going back over your last week or two and seeing um, who have, who have, are new and interesting people that you've met. Uh, when you're in those meetings, uh, have you found opportunities to create more networking connections? Uh, we have this crazy in-house way of, of doing it. We call it spidering. Uh, spidering is a way before the internet happened in our industry. Uh, it was a way that I worked. Uh, when I went into a meeting, I would actually take um, uh, take my, my next meeting and I would say, uh, okay, who does this person know that I might know? So for example, if I spidered you, Michael, immediately in my head, I would think, well, Michael knows Adam Bierenbaum, CEO of Buckingham. Adam's a good friend of mine. That's a common connection. It gives us a great common connection. You do that four or five or six different ways with four or five or six different themes or nine themes as a spider's legs would be. And it would, uh, it would give us a lot of common ground and common connections. Uh, now, today, LinkedIn does all that for you. Right. Um, but it's a way of being prepared to go into the meeting so that hopefully and maybe there's an opportunity to create a second or third meeting with some other person that is a common interest between uh, between the two parties. So, so it's um, all about finding what are the common interests that can create a, a follow-up conversation, a follow-up meeting. Hey, it seems like we share a lot in common. Can I uh, meet with you again next week and talk a little bit more about what we do? That's exactly right. And then and here's – I think this is what's interesting. Senior advisors do this by nature. We automatically do this. But junior advisors don't. And that's the muscle that needs to be created. We walk, you and I will walk into a meeting and immediately within the first few minutes, we'll find commonality and we'll probably do a little bit of prep in our head before. Uh, we need to help junior advisors figure that piece out. So um, you have that. Uh, you also have senior advisors who um, they can also help in terms of uh, in being, being a part of the senior advisors network. And this is where our values-based organization is really critical. One of our values is abundance. And um, abundance for us is you got to be willing to give more than you receive. Uh, you know, our, our, our company is unique in the sense that advisors control their own destiny, but we also are a team. And uh, that senior advisor with that junior advisor, if they just did some overlap in some of their common connections, there's going to be great opportunity to find uh, potential prospects there. The, the, the important piece, though, is that most of the time the senior advisor is so busy that they don't have time to think about this piece. Um, and the junior advisor needs opportunity to create networking networking um, uh, prospect list, and the junior advisor can spend the time to create sort of out of scratch, out of the blue uh, opportunities for both of them. So, so this zero to one FA like activity tracking sheet. I just want to make sure I understand. So, like every every advisor's got got a sheet of this. I'm just visioning like. A bunch of rows for the different activities and a bunch of columns for each day so I can put a put an X or a check mark or whatever it is I want for each item I do each day. And the couple of lines here, like I checked in with my team. I accomplished three things for clients. So my my client service and support, my existing teams comes first. So then I added one person's name to my call list. I guess that's essentially just a prospect list of people I can reach out to in the future to try to set meetings. Yep. Then I set a meeting 
or, yep. or scheduled some networking or prospecting event I'm going to. I had a meeting. Yep. And then I read some industry material, so I'm advancing my knowledge and learning. Uh, and then I'm, I've got a measure of my AUM, so at the end of the day, I'm, I'm tracking some results or remembering what all this is supposed to tie back to. Exactly right. And and so the the idea is just if you can do those things every day all year long, it's going to add up. That's exactly right. And so you know so, you download it into a spreadsheet, and you can quickly find where you spend your time. You know, um, when the spreadsheet shows up to someone's inbox, they they uh, they see that. Oh my gosh! And you'll see this often. You know, where we sort of and this happens to all of us. You float towards the ten, ten minute check in. You did things for clients, and then you know all the biz, biz development pieces mm-hmm. sort of fade away. And sometimes you have great weeks, and sometimes you have soft weeks, and sometimes you have not so great weeks. And I was I was going to say, just I mean, is it really typical that newer advisors like they hit all seven or eight of their things every day of every week, week in, week out, or is there like yeah, if you got if you got three out of you know if you got sixty percent, that's a pretty good week uh like what's the what's the expectation of how much people really manage to check this every day of the week every week of the year in in their first year or two it's it's nearly impossible to do it every single day of the week for you know but um we're okay with that because you know we we get to help them understand and how to this is an exercise program i mean that's where we got it from we based it off of 75 hard i mean the one thing when you're in the exercise world, as long as you're doing something, it's better than doing nothing. And uh, for us, you know, it's it's about, um, you know, it's not a, uh, a requirement where like, if you don't do this, you will get fired. It is a, it, we believe we're developing muscles here, business development muscles. So, um, you know, sometimes you're going to have great weeks and sometimes you're not, you know, it, it just, it's just part of the journey. And I, this is where that patience piece where I spoke of earlier yeah. is so critical because it's not about, well, you didn't do it this week. You're, you know, you're yeah. now like on the risk of not being here. That's not, we don't even speak like that. You know, we, we, we want to just make sure they understand, okay, well, you did a great job with your team. You've read all the industry material, but you haven't put a name in, in a while and you haven't had a meeting you know, these things are going to compound. They're either going to compound in a great way or they're going to compound in a, right. in a not so great way. Let's just understand where we are in our trajectory of growth here. So just curious as well, like, you know, the, the activities here just are very in-person activity, right? Like face-to-face meetings and networking, call lists, uh, in, in-person meetings. So how do you think about you know, marketing activities of social media, like uh, uh, email, building email lists, creating content, like, does that, does that fit within this? Are you not a fan of it? Is that like another way to check this box? Like, how do you, how do you think about uh, just that, that domain of, I'll, I'll probably call like the, the digital uh, alternatives to marketing? It's a fundamental requirement to biz dev in our business today. So we, we, wholeheartedly believe in it. In fact, we have, um, you know, we've got a whole biz dev team that works on video content. Um, uh, we've got goals and quarterly objectives to put out 25 pieces of, of content every quarter. Uh, we do it on a, on a scalable way for our advisors where they get to pull off the shelf what they want and, and, and when they want to s- send it. Uh, and that's uh, also part of that, um, 
you know, sort of prelude to adding a new na- new person's name to your call list or or setting that face to face meeting is that, uh, you know, we believe in in those activities wholeheartedly. Um, so but we want to we want to put together that that content for them and they just quickly scale up and, and be able to, and they're able to get okay. it out to those potential clients. So they 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 don't or can't spend the time creating the content. You're going to create the content because you're trying to push them and keep them focused on you. Like you have to actually get out there and and talk to people. Like can't it's, can't hide in the content. Got to got to go see people. That's exactly right. This is a relationship business, and it will always be a relationship business. So so you highlighted as well that um, there's a director of advisor development role who. I guess who 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 mentors, who manages, who who helps to drive this. So tell us more about that role, because I, I find for most advisory firms, uh, there's an expectation that mentoring and managing comes from whoever the senior advisor is on the team. You know, you you work with Bob, you're on Bob's team. Bob is responsible for you know leading the team, retaining the clients, doing the senior business development, and training and developing the advisors on Bob's team. Uh, uh, and it sounds like you've got at least a little bit of a different approach because there's a dedicated role around advisor development. So can you help us understand like what is this role and just how do roles and responsibilities work between director of advisor development and I'm going to call him Bob, the senior advisor <laughs> on a team that has this CADS person working for them? Like who's responsible for what in this advisor development process? It's a great question. And I think it's a nuance that needs to be divided up that those responsibilities i believe should be split so far since Crilogy started in 2009 we've brought on you know five advisors uh senior advisors who i would say were you know at least 15 to 20 years in the business you know anywhere between 50 and 150 million in their books of business and they joined Crilogy uh, because of our culture of growth and the and the scalability piece uh, of, of taking all the work off their plate so they can focus on their their clients uh, but when I talk to them about the CADS pr- program, they get really jazzed up. And then I say to them, um, do you like to be a mentor? Would would that be of interest to you if we put somebody on your team? And they get super jazzed up. I said, well, would you like to manage that person? They get, it's almost like a depression <laughs> engulfs them. No one likes to manage. Uh, everyone in our firm loves to be mentors. So I wanted to take that management piece off the senior advisor because it's draining, it's difficult, it's time consuming, and it takes them away from the things that they love to do. Uh, the mentor piece gives them juice and it gives them energy. Uh, so we had to create a role, the director of advisor development role, to be the manager, to be the coach, and to help that CADS advisor um, really focus on the proper fundamentals and building their own book of business. So that's why we actually created that role, uh, to take away that management piece and to have accountability and coaching on a consistent basis, and and the senior advisor doesn't have to worry about that. So, so questions like you know have have you made your numbers? Let's sit down, look at your numbers. All right, your numbers are off. Let's talk about what's going on so, and why they're off. That's all the director of advisor development's role, not the not Bob the senior advisor. That's right. That's right. But but if Bob and the and the uh, advisor in the CADS program or serving clients and there's a an opportunity to so like, hey, let's reflect on how, why that meeting went well or didn't go well. Like Bob's got plenty of room to say, hey, let's have a mentoring moment and talk about what went well and what didn't go well in that meeting. That's exactly right. And so the director of advisor development then just s- sounds like this gets 
pretty busy pretty quickly because I'm just envisioning, I think you said there are four, 14 advisors in the CAD system. So so this person's just like rotating around 14 people doing coaching and check-ins and ongoing training and support. Yeah, we actually have two advisor. Um, okay. Our- uh, what we call dads, director advisor development. So um, dads is a terrible acronym, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> well, uh, it, it, it paints a picture around manager right. and coach. <laughs> All right. I know. I know. Um, so the uh, we actually have two because, you know, once you get to the eight to 10 number, you yep. start really tap out in terms of yep. time. Okay. So, and so what is, I guess, meeting and accountability look like from, from the CADs to the dads? Uh, I mean, are these weekly meetings, monthly meetings, like how how much managing and interaction goes on? What's the expectation? Well, early on, it's definitely weekly because, you know, if you can imagine that you're, you know, you're working with a trainer on the exercise world, you want to con- stay consistent early on as they continue, as the, as the advisor starts to develop their book of business, they don't, you know, they may or may not need, depending on where they are and, and what's happening in their career, they may or may not need um, you know, a weekly meeting. Uh, for example, we have advisors who are, um, you know, once they get to a certain point in their career, we want them to take the CFP and uh, we fund it, we pay for it. We, we give, well, that CFP endeavor, it, you know, is, it takes up a lot of, a lot of specific time. So obviously, you know, they're going to come in, they're going to do their job for their team. They're going to be working on their CFP at night and at home, you know, where do they fit their, their business development, um, you know, time, effort, energy in there, you know, you're going to see some flexibility there in those moments. And uh, CFP is just an example of some flexibility. Uh, but we also want to make sure that we're consistent in helping them uh, not forget about uh, that, that, that business development, that business growth piece in terms of the activity. Because guess what? It's the CFP when you're young and not married and uh, or maybe just married. Uh, but it's the three kids in the house and everything else later on in your life that takes up time, effort, energy. You still have to be in the business development uh, mindset in some way, shape or form over time. So how how far do they have to get in before you would typically steer them towards pursuing CFP marks? Like where, where does that actually come in your uh, advisor progression, advisor journey? Somewhere around that third year, maybe fourth year, depending on, you know, their, their progress most of the time in that third year, or even sometimes, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, back in the day, it was probably four years, but now because of how quickly we can scale up an advisor to that 10 to $20 million in assets range. I mean, it's, it can come in that, you know, they could, they could be considering it in their, in their second year, preparing for the third year of, of, uh, of industry experience. So, you know, really, really kind of depends on their growth path. So I was going to ask just what's the, what's the trigger point. So it sounds like for you, it's, it's not, it's not literally time-based per se. It's, once you get to a critical mass of 10 to 20 million of of assets and you've you've built some business development muscle with the training and the support you're like you're a critical mass you built up that muscle enough that we're comfortable now you can keep exercising a little bit more on your own now we'll support you to go get your cfp marks correct yep and is that something the the firm covers is that something they're expected to make an investment into themselves we make the investment okay so how does then Crilogy University fit into this? So take take me back to Crilogy University. Like what are, what's what's getting taught there? Like what's the curriculum and and who teaches it? So um, I'll take a further step back. So we have well, we'll, well we have a classic sort of investment committee. Nine people on the investment committee, as you would imagine. It's 
very similar to a lot of other firms with an investment committee. But we actually have what we call a WIC, a Wealth Intelligence Committee. We're full of acronyms, as most financial firms are. Uh, but Wealth Intelligence Committee, it, we have just as much weight in the Wealth Intelligence Committee as we do with our investment committee. We believe it's critical to our organization. Um, the WIC actually is, uh, is all CFPs, CPAs, and attorneys. And they actually help create, led by Nathan Holt, uh, one of our partners, he leads our WIC, he creates the Crilogy University curriculum. And the curriculum will bounce between our portfolios, which is, you know, the core of what we do, portfolio management, but uh, also uh, CFB-based planning, uh, update on new legislation, Secure Act 2, tax and uh, estate planning, and each each expert in the WIC can support you know four to seven different Monday morning trainings throughout the entire year. So you're talking about you know somewhere around forty to forty five Mondays a year. Uh, we have an expert in house. Sometimes we'll we'll use our in house experts. Sometimes we'll actually use you know um, an expert from out out of the office uh, from one of our you know vendors or you know. It can be as it can be as basic as Tamarack training, or it could be as advanced as alt alternative investments. I mean, it can range from a lot of different places. So, uh, and it can also range from very basic training to you know pretty advanced in terms of um, on the on the financial planning side or the investment piece. And we encourage our CADs to go there every every week, even if it's over their head. Uh, at some point, they'll start to stick. So, so these are. It sounds like these are primarily driven. Internally, just like everybody on the WIC rotates around taking a meeting every month or two that they've got to do some kind of training for on something that they're comfortable to train on. It is, yes. And the WIC does a great job for us of just making sure there's coherent, you know, sort of strategy behind it. It's just not, you know, some random topic on a Monday. They sort of build out their year in a coherent way, which is really, really nice and really effective training tool for for our CADs and even staff and our senior advisors when they want to pop in. And how long are the meetings? An hour. Okay. No more and, than an hour. And, and they're when, on Mondays. So they, you know, we want to respect people's time, 10 o'clock. And when they're on 10, yeah. 10 o'clock in the 10 a.m.? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I know it sounds like it's this wonderful, like set it and forget it type thing. Uh, you know, for years we struggled with what was the best date or day during the week? What was the best yeah. time? You know, our Thursday mornings better or Friday mornings better. Well, no one would come on Fridays because people take three day weekends and, you know, Monday mornings. Well, no one wants to do it on Monday at eight. Cause we all come in ready to do our real job. And so uh, we've effectively settled on that 10 a.m. on Mondays, which we believe people can come in, get a couple hours of work in, sort of clean off that that soot from the weekend that you've been thinking about all week and all that work you want to do, and then and then get into a training session for an hour. Um, you know, but it it's really really heavy lifting in terms of like you know what Nathan Holt and the WIC are doing for for that curriculum. It's uh, as you know, I mean, you you, you build out these programs. They're uh, you know, they're not set it and forget it. It's a lot of heavy lifting. And and are these mandatory meetings? Like, does everyone have to come? For the CADs, yes. So mandatory for the CADs and I guess other more senior advisors get a, just get a choice if it's an interesting topic for them? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we don't, we don't do a lot of managing. We don't do any managing of our seniors. I mean, these, 
these folks are veteran in the business. We don't need to tell them. We just need to offer them opportunities to to get better. They'll take advantage of it when when and when they have time and when it's when it's a right opportunity for them. So help us understand how compensation works for the for the cats. You know, as we know, like historically for the industry was a, a very eat what you kill business. You know, your your income is zero or near zero until you go get some clients to bring in some revenue, even salaries were often actually draws against future commissions. You you noted like the shifts to the AUM model with recurring revenue and the fact that ongoing clients have to be supported means you get a little more flexibility about how how you do this. So what like what does compensation for the CADS program look like in practice? How how do you actually do this? It's um, it started out back in the day uh, very simple. We paid them forty grand the first year, thirty, twenty, ten. This was way back in the day. And then over time, you know, if, if they put in assets, you know, it should offset that drop in income. We don't do that anymore because um, we change it. That was back in the day when we didn't have a lot of teams. So we hired advisors who just really sort of were effectively under my team. And I only had, you know, so much time, effort and energy. Um, so that's changed a little bit since we've we've uh, assigned a CADS to a team. And we feel like it's much more effective with this team-based structure because they get immediate mentorship and we can manage them uh, with our director of advisor development. Um, that concept though, of that income dropping is actually still the same. The incomes are going to be higher depending on uh, sort of where they are in their career. Uh, but that concept of them wanting to eventually make that shift to be a senior advisor where their comp is based on their revenue, not a salary plus. Um, when that shift happens, the exact same sort of concept works where their salary starts to drop and they are required to put in AUM to offset any drop in their salary. Uh, but at that moment, we we believe, and so do they, that they already have built a skill set out to create that those new assets and new revenue to have extreme confidence in themselves to make that transition happen. And I don't give specifics because each individual advisor's transition is, is different. Some may wait until they're 30 million in assets, some want to do it at 15, some want to do it at 40, depending on their comfort level. And obviously, when you get to those different, you know, salary ranges and and uh, commission structures, they they get uh, they get pretty custom. So we get to customize it for each advisor based on their moment in their life. Can you help me understand a little bit more? Though, just I mean, what do at least salary ranges look like? Like, just where are you typically starting starting people as they? as they come in before they have any assets and they're just getting going cold. Well, it's, it's, it's more than 40. I can tell you that. I mean, that was, uh, <laughs> that was when we were uh, smaller, I would say, depending on their experience, you're probably talking, you know, somewhere in that 60 plus. Okay. You know, it's interesting too, uh, Michael, it, a lot of advisors will come in at a higher rate, but they, they may be in a situation where they're with a senior advisor they want to build their own practice, but that senior advisor doesn't want them to because right. it's not beneficial to the senior. We're a great organization for someone like that. You know, they might walk in here with a salary and $10 million of their own book of business because they helped the senior advisor at their previous firm get that. And, um, but they just, they sort of hit a ceiling with that senior advisor. Um, obviously that person's uh, financial you know, uh, situation is going to be a lot different than someone coming in with zero assets under management. Um, you know, so it all kind of depends. But you know, I would say somewhere in the sixty range is where we start, and then it goes up from there. And and then how does compensation based on 
AUM or, or revenue work. It sounds like at, at some point you're getting paid some some percentage of your revenue and you can hit a crossover point where your percentage of revenue is more than your salary and 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 now you're in a uh AUM percentage of revenue world but like what are the what are the splits like how do you actually allocate this between 10 and 50 depending on the what the advisor how much risk they want to take on you know um you between know between 10% and 50% of revenue yeah so they might take again this is all custom they might take 10% but a higher salary and more stability or they may go you know let me go all in on this thing and, uh, I'll, you know, I've hit that crossover point that you spoke of, uh, and I'm good to go. And I feel confident that this thing's going to continue to grow and I'm going to continue to add assets. So I'll take the, you know, 40, 45, 50, depending on how much in assets they have. It all depends on the assets they have at the moment. Because like you'll, you set maximum payouts based on the amount of assets they have, or, or you'll, you only allow them to like do crossovers or payouts when they hit certain, certain thresholds. Well, we do have maximum payouts, um, but it, it it all depends on the assets, I would say. So, uh, but for those junior advisors, I mean, you know, if you're at you know thirty million dollars, you know, you're 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 not going to get a super high payout just because of the the, the revenue. But uh, you you can eventually get to really decent payouts um, as you continue to grow your your book of business. Because remember, we're still funding we're still funding a lot of things. For that, right? You've you've got all the fixed overhead. That's always the challenge of starting advisors from zero. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, uh, so I guess a couple of following questions. So, just is there a threshold in your in your mind in your system where just okay, the assets are high enough now that you can get our maximum payout? I mean, yeah, I guess there's they still have some choice about how much risk and volatility they want to take on. But is is there some threshold where Okay, you can get to maximum payouts with us now because you've you've hit the number that covers the overhead. Yeah, that number's probably around fifty million, but you know, you start to think about that as an advisor somewhere around the thirty million range. So three hundred to five hundred in terms of revenue. Okay. And 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 then and then payouts can get up to fifty percent of revenue for you at the top end and you're covering all the all the overhead that comes with it thereafter right rent and staff support and technology costs and compliance and all the rest yeah and then we have different incentive programs that allow sort of a higher net take home you know where you can get closer to that 50 to 60 55 to 60 based on incentives uh, new deposits net new deposits growth um you know all of those items and then the size of your book you know i mean we're not so naive to think that you know, a, a decent sized book is going to be paid at 45 points. That's, you know, we, we want to grow big books. We do grow big books. And when those books get large enough, we want to offer optionality to those advisors, you know, in, in, in number of ways, payout control, uh, but also liquidity. And I, you know, we haven't gotten to this part yet in terms of like, we talked so much about developing talent, but we have, we have senior advisors who are exiting today and we're, they're utilizing this wonderful uh, program the CADS program to develop their their successor advisor, uh, but we we have the ability to create a liquidity moment for um, for our advisors, and this is something we've learned over the last uh, probably two years is that you know some advisors actually in their career before they're sixty or sixty five have considered a liquidity event at least to take some money off the table, and um, we have that ability uh, for advisors in their forties and fifties to take a little bit of little bit of equity off the table from their practices and that and, and we believe that that's a um, 
a, you know, kind of a little bit of a unique thing is that we actually can help you grow your practice, build it. And then if you want to sell a portion of your practice back uh, to Crilogy, we're, we're willing to buy it back from you. I mean, it's a really interesting, fun uh, new thing that we've put together and uh, we've, we've gotten some good traction with that. So, so I, I, uh, I do want to come back to that, uh, but I, I want to make sure I understand just a little bit more of the CAD structure. And I guess just I'm, I'm trying to envision how this works in the context of teams. You said, right, like the, the CADs get set onto a team with a, with a senior advisor. So, and and are supporting the the clients of the team. So I'm I'm envisioning that like classic scenario. You know, I have a senior advisor has a client that they've had for a lot of time. The CADS advisor has uh, been supporting and doing the doing the client work. And now a referral comes in, and maybe the CADS person is the one that fields the call, or maybe the CADS person even has gotten the closer relationship with the client recently. So. Like, how do you handle things like you know, fee splits and who gets credit for the referral and and such when a CADS is on a team with a senior advisor who I'm presuming also wants credit for some of the new revenue that comes in? <laughs> Great question. It comes back to our values, dedication, abundance, leadership, respect. Um, in that moment, it, you know, if it's if, if that referral has come from the senior advisor's practice, even if it's, even if the CADs helped generate that referral or you know sort of made the connection with that referral, that's the senior advisor's um, because it wouldn't have been there without the senior advisor. The CAD may have done a really amazing job of like making the connection or figuring it out, but ultimately that's the senior advisor's. We have to really protect that because the CADs will be in that position at some point in their career as well. Um, you know, relationships in our business is the most critical piece uh, to a senior advisor's world. I mean, that's that's what advisors sell in the end, right? I mean, they don't sell assets under management. They're selling the relationships, uh, you know, and that that's what creates value in practices. But, you know, um, most of the time, if you're a mentor and you're a senior advisor, you're going to find ways to reward uh, the CADs for making that happen. It could be a split. It's up to the senior advisor and the and the CADs to determine that, depending on the amount of work and uh, you know the effort and energy put forth in that relationship. Um, it could be a bonus. It could be you know whatever the senior advisor sort of feels would be appropriate to support or to make that CADs feel uh, as if it's it was a worthwhile endeavor to go down that road. Interesting. So the so the senior advisor can set some of this, but but nominally, like the senior advisor's book is still the senior advisor's book, and I guess in turn that means as the CADs builds their their client base, like that's not that's not sharing up the line any more than the senior advisor's client revenue is sharing down the line. They're 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 ultimately each building their own client base and their own books of business. That's and correct, they're, and they're each compensated on their own revenue tied to their own clients and their own book of business. That's correct. And what's critical here, Michael, is that our value-based culture and the type of people that we bring in uh, want to work in that environment where we're, we're, we're like an NFL team. Everyone has, you know, controls their own destiny in terms of, you know, each player. But <clears throat> if you want to win the Super Bowl, you have to play as a team. And you want, to, you want people who want to play on a team and do team-based uh, activity, knowing that in the end, uh, everyone grows because of that. Uh, mentality. So um, it's really critical for the for the senior advisor to be uh, aligned in how they approach the business. So for the CADs, y- you had said like there's a point where they may 
trigger a shift where they're going from more salary and lower lower percentage of revenue to I guess lower salary and higher percentage of revenue. So is that just in in their control? Like at some point when they are ready to bear the ups and downs and the you know the volatility of revenue based compensation? <laughs> yeah, uh, right. You know, perhaps not ideal in once they become officially officially but, yeah. crazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, pick pick your pick your bull market year as appropriate. Uh, but just is is that ultimately in their control like they get to decide when they when they want to do that transition or is there some automatic transition that happens where their percentage of revenue goes up if their salary is also automatically dialing down you know it it used to be very sort of strict in terms of like certain hurdles but ultimately what we have found is that people um, grow in different uh, at different paces and then they also have different um, personal situations that require some customiz- customization. So it's really more consulting with our director of advisor development, the senior advisor mentor, and um, and the and the CADs to determine the best time to start the. It's not even a leaping off point. It's sort of a sort of this nice gradual change. So um, you know, it's 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 a collaboration and it's a conversation, and I believe that. You know, this is, I, I spoke early on about you have to be able to give time to people in this business. And that part right there is a classic example of just spending time right. to work on that development plan. Um, and if you if you give the right time and, and, and effort, uh, the plan should be, should should give that CAD the best possible opportunity to, to make the switch. And, and we have not had one CAD make the switch and not make it in this business. I mean, it's... It's it, it it proves itself well, out. Yeah, I would, every I would think if you're time. just coming in that system environment, like you don't you don't really have to cut the cord any earlier than you would want to cut the cords. So by the time you're ready to cut the cord, like you're you're probably in a pretty good position to keep your momentum from there. Absolutely. And what I say to the cat is like, look, if you're worried about six months or if you if you have any worry about this, don't just wait. I mean, we're talking about a thirty year career. You know, what's what's uh twenty four or forty eight weeks? Like, take your time. It's okay. You know. Yeah. Um, because over the next 30 years, you're going to be, you know, you're set up to have just an absolutely amazing, amazing career. So uh, it's okay to be patient. So then you, you had said earlier, like CAD's positions are not automatic. Like there has to be a position open with the senior advisor. So what determines whether a CAD's position is open? And then I guess I'm also trying to understand tied with that. Like who who pays for the for the CADs? Like does that come out of the senior advisor's revenue is that comes from Crilogy because that's part of the the Crilogy overhead contribution. So how do you determine if there's a position open and then who who pays for the position? Which bucket does that come from? Yeah, good question. So the the size of the book and the amount of work uh, workload on the senior advisor's uh, books determines that, and uh, we work closely with them. There are some sort of levels, but the levels can be uh, fluid, you know, if you're at the 30 to 40 to $50 million range, um, you, you start to get, you know, there's, there's a CADS put in there because you already have a WSM supporting you. Um, so at that 30 to $40 million range is probably a good sort of statement to say, Hey, you know, CADS is something that you should, you should have in your, in your practice. Uh, Crilogy pays for that. And the reason is, is that we are injecting, this is where we, this is why we grow advisors by 27% a year. If you're at 30 to 40 million, you got a WSM, so you're getting work off your plate there. And now you have a paraplanner, so to speak, on the CAD side. 
that can also help you and support you. Um, your your time, effort, and energy can be focused on the right thing as a senior advisor. Uh, you also just finished the CADS program of either a year or two or three or four earlier, but you know you're still uh, remembering what it's like to go through there um, through that program. And uh, Crilogy is investing in potentially a new team, right? The CADS, we want them to flourish and grow and eventually become a new team. So this is a, um, you know, it's it's a multiplier effect here uh, that we believe works. And um, that, so that's why we pay for it. You know, we'd rather make that investment because the senior advisor won't make that investment. I mean, they just, you know, there's not enough revenue in their practice to make that investment at that moment. So, so what happens to this, I guess, what happens to the senior when the CADS like graduates? Cause I, I, if, uh, if a CADS graduates at, you know, somewhere in the 30 to 50 million range where they can stand on their own, they get their own WSM and they may be getting their own CADS. Then I'm, I'm kind of envisioning like now you, now you basically have two, two vacancies. You've got a CAD support for the prior CAD who graduated and now runs their own book. And then you've got like the hole they left behind on the senior advisors team because they graduated off. So like, is that how it works? And and when a CADS graduates out, like you, you're, you're looking at essentially hiring two positions, one to backfill the, the senior and then one to support the, the new team. That's exactly right. And what we have found is, um, we talk about our strategic planning and the process and what we've discovered in this is exactly what you just deduced right there, which is uh, what happens now. You're not a $40 million advisor. You're a 90 or a hundred million dollar advisor and your CAD just left you. Who's been with you for three or four years. They've made a really big impact on your, on your practice and you've made a big impact on them. What do you need in that moment? Your WSM is still there, but what type of uh, staff person do you need? A lot of times what we found is you actually need a career CFP, someone who has no desire to go out and build their own practice. Right. And they tend to fit in that spot very well. What's interesting is that some of our CADs decide to become career CFPs. You know, after going through the program, they're like, you know what, that that biz dev piece is not me. So, you know, they may decide to stay into that career CFP uh, piece. Um, okay. And, and, and we... We had to create that as an option over time because that's how we all evolved and that's how practices evolved in the firm. So that senior advisor now has a career CFP and a WSM, um, depending on the senior advisor's sort of uh, appetite for risk, we'll pay for the CFP or they pay for the CFP, depending on how, how they want to deal with it. And um, and then the CADS is, is uh, filled in on the, you know, another team, so to speak. Or, you know, we have to backfill that CADS. Right. Uh, for, for, for one of theirs. So you're really ending out with kind of two different tracks now that are starting to emerge. There's the advisors that go through the CADS program and are, are good at business development, like business development, want to continue that role. They get a critical mass of clients, spin off into their own team, may get their own CAD support and, and continue to grow and chug forward from there. Or you find or decide like business development and lead advisor role is not for you. But good news, we've got um, senior advisors who also just want ongoing career CFP associate advisor kind of support. So if that's your preferred role in that service advisor kind of kind of path, now that's becoming available as well. That's right. And over time, because we have more mature teams now with 100, 200, 250 million of AUM, those opportunities are 
you know, are, are being created every year as well. So is the comp different for that career CFP service advisor kind of role? Because if, if they're supporting a senior, like they're, they're not, they're not bringing in revenue in the same way that traditionally has percentage of revenue payouts. So do they, are they salaried? Do they? Salaried, yes. Okay. Salary bonus. And that, and that may come from the senior advisor if they're large enough that they need it, then they can support it. Yeah, it's really more of the appetite of the senior, I would say, more than anything. You know, if they want to take on more of that responsibility versus, you know, sort of higher payout, more responsibility on their P&L, or they just want to, most most advisors with us want to set and forget it and let us deal with it. Oh, so it's actually up to the senior, like they can, uh, they can ask for a higher payout and then have to cover this cost and and try to manage their P&L a little bit more, or they can stay on the existing grid and Crilogy covers this as long as their their book's large enough to to support it. Well, it's more hybrid. We'll take care of some of their staff, a little bit higher payout. They are allowed, you know, they they can. Yeah, I mean, effectively, but they're it, it's it's <laughs> as with most things, Michael. It's not black yeah. and white. Everything is gray. I would say my advice to any any other person trying to get into this part of the development world in terms of like growing advisors, everything's gray. Everything's unique. Every situation is different. You try to create rules, but um, yep. every rule you create creates three more rules. And next thing you know, you get you know fifty rules and fifty exceptions. And, you know, it, it it turns into a gray area pretty quick. So so now help us understand the liquidity dynamics. So you said you're you're now building this option as well, where senior advisors who want to sell Crilogy can support them as an exit plan. It sounds like even with either a full sale or with a partial sale. So talk to us more about just this this program and how it works. Yeah. So this actually came from, so our strategic planning process is uh, one of the things we do is a thing called start, stop, keep. And uh, we, we talk to our uh, advisors, talk to our staff, we talk to our clients about which we start doing, stop doing, keep doing. Um, and uh, one of the things we figured out from our senior advisors, really from, I would say more like age-wise from 45 to 65, is that, um, you know, obviously for the, the ones in their 60s, they're interested in some sort of liquidity. And we have provided that option with the buyouts. That's um, you know, uh, that's been, that's been there for quite some time. Uh, but what surprised us over the last, um, you know, last year or so is that advisors younger in their career are considering taking a little bit of money off the table and, uh, for, for whatever reason. Um, and we had never really considered that before. And, um, you know, so I went with, talked to my, talked to my, uh, partners and, uh, you know, we, we, we created a program that gives the advisors the ability and the option to take a little bit or all off the table uh, if they wanted to and have Crilogy completely own that book of business or partially own that book of business. Uh, where it, today the advisors, um, you know, who transfer in or who, who have, um, you know, the opportunity to, or advisors who have transferred in, like, you know, they come in, they own their book of business. Um, well, now we have the ability to buy that book partially from them at an early age rather than uh, waiting until they're 60, 65, and they sort of think about retirement there. So it's just a little bit unique uh, setup that we've that we've went down here that we're pretty excited about and we have uh, some people interested in. So uh, so help us understand a little bit more of 
I just how this actually works, right? Like I'm a you know I'm an advisor that built up to a hundred million dollar book of business. I've been doing this for for a while. I'm I guess probably in my late forties or early fifties, so I'm at that maybe I want to take some chips off the table stage. So I come to Curlogy and say, I don't know, like I I, I want to take half my chips off the table. So like, how does this work? I mean, what do what do you what do you do? What do you buy? What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> It's simple. You get you get the practice valued by uh, valuation expert. Number comes out. They figure out if they want to sell a portion of it, all of it. Um, we get financing for it, and you know, transactions made. I mean, it's not. It's a very simple transaction because we all know where the clients are. There, there are no right. like you know skeletons in the closet. We all know who we are. Uh, it's a it's a very simple deal. Um, so it's not a it's not a difficult process. So, so you're you're doing all this. It's not a like an internal formula thing. They just go get a third party valuation. We use the same firm that we use for Krilogy's valuation. And can I ask who who is that that does the valuation? Uh, Melissa Gregg is her name. BridgeValuation.com. Okay, so, so that's who Krilogy uses. We just hand it over to her. She comes back with the number. We don't negotiate over it because we believe she's you know she's going to give a good number, and we go from there. Okay. So for that, so for that structure, they could they just come and say whatever percentage they're willing to sell, and you'll you'll do the the deal on that. So I want I want to sell my half of my hundred million dollar book. We get a valuation on the hundred million dollar book from Melissa. You know, divide by two, off and and off we go. Right. And and so what are what are terms around this? Like, do you do you pay the whole thing up front? Do you like pay it over? a bunch of years is are there contingencies to it like how, how do you actually structure the purchase since you know it's I feel like it's a little bit different than some traditional deals cuz like they're still there it's not like a total exit transaction yeah i mean obviously when you're you know there's there's uh you know there's there's employment agreements you know it's a different deal right um there's um you know they're looking for liquidity. So you're not going to say, Hey, I'm going to pay you out over 10 years. I mean, that that it defeats the purpose for them. So this is a true liquidity moment. Um, you know, and that, so the, there is a, there is a portion or like that's, that's the reason. So we want to give them liquidity. Um, but then from there it's employment agreements and, and, uh, and, and, um, non-solicits and non-competes and all that fun stuff. Right. I mean, we are, we are taking over that book of business and that's, that's no different than we, we see that no different than when, you know, uh, we've done this multiple times where owners of individual RAs, 50 to 100 million, have decided to uh, move over to Krilogy to get all the back office work off their plate, yada, yada, yada. We strike them a check. You know, we find the succession advisor, all that stuff. This is the exact same way, except we don't have to find a succession advisor. You know, they get they get a, a lower payout, of course, because we're buying. Uh, well, I was going to say, so then like the other follow on to this is how does the um, uh, like how does the advisor comp work? on on the other end like do you just do you know divide divide by two since i sold the book in half like i i had a 100 million dollar book and i i sold 50 million of it to Krilogy. so now my uh my compensation the rest is is just only based on the 50 percent i still own and and i i just kind of cut cut my comp in half in exchange for selling half the business effectively i mean there's obviously there's obviously nuance to it but that's effectively right okay and and how do you handle the the financing for this? Like, do you cover this from internal cash flow, or are you going out and trying to get bank financing to manage this? Both. Okay. 
is there a particular go-to or preference? Not really. I don't think so. I mean, you know, um, you know, cash flow is always nice to do it because you don't have to worry about, you know, having a bank to deal with. I'm from, uh, I'm from a small town in Missouri, Washington, Missouri, and I've got a great bank in that small town. It takes great care of us and has is, is, is always been a really great partner. So the stress of banking is not uh, too, too terribly difficult for me. Um, I'm very, very fortunate in that. Um, but I prefer to do it cash flow wise if we can. And then if, if and when the advisor eventually gets to the the total sale, I presume at that point the purchase structure is more or less similar. We bring Melissa in or back in, we value the whole business or whatever's left of it. We get a number and then Crilogy can do the purchase on whatever was left in the book when the advisor ultimately wants to retire. That's exactly right. The the caveat to that is though we we need two years notice so that we can spend the next two years, you know four to five months on finding a successor advisor and then a year and a half on the transition because that's a really critical piece and we've we've transitioned multiple senior advisors out of their books with succession advisors and uh, we need that time to make sure that the succession advisor is um, is set up for success and that the practice is going to sustain itself um, we get that successor advisor either from the CAS program or you know the CADs who have graduated into senior advisors or we have the ability to recruit in someone who aligns with uh, what we're trying to do uh, and is excited about taking over a book of business. So we kind of find our candidates from two different piles. One is a current current roster of advisors or, and then the second would be, you know, recruiting from the outside. And is there a different comp structure if the, you know, Crilogy buys and essentially like hands them, assigns them the client base as opposed to a clientele that they went and sourced to themselves? Yes. I mean, it's, as you can imagine, it's that, you know, closer to that 20, 25% range, you know, depending on the size of the book and, you know, how much support they need. I mean, it's, it's going to be somewhere around that. Okay. Which by the time you're getting new, uh, uh, 50 to a hundred million dollar plus book that you may be buying like 20 to 25% of revenues, like it's a nice number. You're, you're not, you're not doing this with a small book. You're, you're doing it with a, a, a good sized one in the first place. Yep. That's absolutely right. And they have the opportunity to, you know, um, build that book and, you know, grow their income. You know, we want to, again, we want advisors thinking in growth terms. And then what happens during that 18 month transition to make it, make it go smoothly? I mean, just, you've said you've, you've done a number of these now. So like, what do you actually do in that transition period to make sure this goes well and clients transition smoothly? Well, I think it's uh, it's it's being intentional about the transition. Um, you know, first and foremost, you have to have a program where you know how do we introduce the successor advisor? How do we not spook the clients? Um, you know, which parts of the uh, relationship does the successor advisor take over first um, and, and sort of control? And then how eventually what are the next parts of the relationship where they take over the entirety of the of the uh, of the meeting, so to speak, the review meeting? Uh, so, for example, we just you know we have. Uh, we have an advisor who's transitioning out here this year. Uh, his successor advisor is a CFP, CPA, CPA by trade. So as you can imagine, her part of that meeting that is um, that she's going to take over first is the pl- the planning and the tax conversation. Right. Uh, eventually, she'll take over the investment and the portfolio piece. But the, we're gonna we're gonna put her in the best possible situation right up front to take advantage of her skill sets to show her chops with those clients uh, for the first six to 
12 months before she takes over the entire piece. So we actually have a, um, a very specific program of how that works. And uh, the senior advisor and the, or the, the, the retiring advisor and the successor advisor follow that program over the 18-month period. Interesting. So, so it sounds like the transition of is the successor advisor going to start taking the lead you know, on, on the planning stuff first or on the investment side first is driven much more by what is the actual strength of the successor if if they're coming from a tax and planning background we're going to have them start with the tax and planning end because that builds more trust faster by showing showing competences because success in the strength and then they'll do the investment side later and then presuming the the reverse is true as well if it's someone that was more investment inclined in the first place and that was their strength then they may start with the investment review conversations and they'll pick up the tax and planning conversation second that's exactly right yeah interesting and and, and, and it, there's some intentionality too with um even the first meeting and i would mess this up if we didn't come if this didn't sort of come through the uh, our start stop keep as well um you know let's let's say that um you know i have i'm leaving the business and i have a successor advisor named bill and he's coming in to uh, take over for my practice. And I might walk Bill into that first meeting and say, Hey, meet Bill. He's a C- CFP. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's just started my team and you know, we're really excited to have him and then move on. Right. Well, the important piece of that meeting is really critical. You, you, you've got to take it the opportunity to give more of a, um, commercial about Bill. Here's Bill. Here's his experience. Uh, here's what he's going to be working on. Here's his expertise. Here's why his ex- here's why he's an expert in this particular field. Here's some of the mm-hmm. uh, examples of w- some of the things he's worked on, and actually just be a little bit more intentional about the depth of Bill's skill set and why he's such a great fit on the team. Mm-hmm. It's small nuances like that that really make a big impact on the succession planning. Interesting. So, so it sounds like this had become much more intentional of. How do we act, how do we really build up the successor advisor to just to be able to stand on their own merits into this relationship? It, and it's a balance of honoring the legacy of the original advisor because they put their heart and soul into this practice, and um, you know you have to honor the legacy, but yet um, help this the successor advisor. Uh, start off on a really great solid foundation because all you care about really is just the peace of mind with the clients. You just want to provide them peace of mind. And, and um, you know, the, for us, it's, it's critical for them to, to start off on a great foot and then have, be intentional about every other meeting going forward. So as you look back over this journey, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? Um, I, oh man, so much. What doesn't surprise me at this point? I think every day I walk in and find something new that's a challenge and uh, and fun. Um, you know, the joy of of watching people grow and 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 working with my teammates. You know, we have teammates in Dallas and Florida and Omaha and um, you know, Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, you know the relationships we get to build is is the absolute most fun part of our our our, our business and, and watching friends and and colleagues and teammates going through different life's um, you know uh, moments and opportunities and challenges like we have people with grandkids and we have people with you know having their first baby in our firm and and it is such a joy to be a part of part of those parts of life so the, the the hard part though is I always I have this saying you know the best part is we get to make this up. But the hardest part is we have to make it up. And, um, 
you know, sometimes figuring things out, uh, like I said earlier, with uh, with each individual advisor's uh, sort of uh, payouts and all that stuff, that's that's not easy and it's not clean and it's never as, as simple as it seems. And, and uh, we have to sort of get used to just living in that space of not knowing. Um, you know, sometimes it's just really, really difficult and you have to make a decision and move on and learn from it and be able to adjust and be able to move uh, pivot and, and but but the most important thing is you grow and the most important thing is you move on and the most important thing is you keep going because you know you have no other choice once you're out here in this RIA space you know you just got to keep going. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Um, you know I would say low points for me are when I don't really have a major low point. I would just say this that there's you know one of our one of our great clients said to me one time. The more money you make, it accentuates the person you are. And if you're a wonderful person, the more money you make, you're going to be even more wonderful. But if you're an egotistical maniac, the more money you make, you're going to be an even bigger one. And I think the low points for me is when is when um, I see success for, for certain people in the industry. And um, it sort of like exposes the person they are and and that person ends up not being a part of Krillogy and that th- those are really difficult times because you spend a lot of time effort and energy with them um you know and 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 it just doesn't work out and i think those are difficult times because you because so when an advisor you developed ultimately decides to to leave and move on yeah yeah because together we we did some great things and but it just they just didn't align with the values in our approach to business and i think you know, those are, it's never easy when that happens because we put our heart and soul into our advisors. And, and the challenge sometimes is you can, you can try to evaluate and vet values up front, but per, per the comment from the client, like, the more money you make, the more it accentuates who you are. So some people, you, you may not really be able to see the, the full or real them until they get to a certain point of income and success. And, right. and, and then it shows up and it's like, oh, yeah, you're not actually going to be a good fit here. After. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, there's humility when we're all struggling and poor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when the humility is gone, who are you? So in that vein, like what, what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from almost 15 years ago when you were thinking about starting Curlogy? Oh my gosh. Uh, I would, I would, uh, I would tell that guy to, uh, uh, probably not start it because <laughs> uh, not start it the way I started it. I think, you know, that we've learned so much now. I mean, it, I probably skipped the first five to seven years uh, just because of all the iterations. And, and so what, like, what were the problem iterations that have now fallen by the wayside that in retrospect, you wish you hadn't started with those? Well, you know, hardly paying our advisors, I think, you know, the, the CADs, I mean, we barely pay them. Um, and if you look at it today, right, I think I said earlier, 40, 30, 20, 10, I mean, if you would have just paid them each 10 grand more, their lives would be completely different. Our lives would not be that different. Um, you know, it's those sort of things mm-hmm. that I think you, you know, you try to save money, uh, you try to, you know, keep a healthy business going, and you just worry so much about those those little small dollar amounts when in the end they, they, they probably don't add up to much, but they could actually make a really big impact on your people. And mm-hmm. I think that's the, that's the thing I, I would definitely change because, 
you know, and, and by the way, all those people that started with me are all partners. So it's really fun today. And we have these great partner meetings where, you know, we joke where none of us had any money and we were all trying to build something really special. And, you know, we're getting to that moment where we feel like we've, you know, we, we've got a fairly mature company. We could have been a little bit more liberal in our comp with those, with those advisors early on, I think for sure. And so it was just not really having good clarity early on of where where can we afford to spend a little more and where can we not because everything feels tight at the beginning when you're trying to grow the business. Yes. So what what advice would you give younger, like newer advisors looking to come into the industry today? Find a firm that cares about your growth. And how and do you figure out which ones really care about your growth? Because no I, one, no one really says we don't care about your growth i know i know i think it's i think it's the the most difficult piece or the only way probably to find out is to interview other uh you know cad like people in that organization and i would ask for that opportunity to do that um you know i would ask the question who would be my mentor and then i would also question ask ask the question who would be my manager and then you gotta kind of you kind of have to interview them back saying you know are they qualified to do either um because I think that's a really critical piece. It's, it's you know, for for advisors who want to build their own book of business, it's difficult to find organizations who want that as well. Most right. advise, most most senior advisors don't have the time, effort, and energy to make that happen. We we, we would love to help senior advisors um, with that as well, uh, because I think they want to. It's just they don't have the time, effort, or they don't have the time to do it. You know, or even just sort of a scalable model to do it by. So interesting. So, uh, so try to interview other newer associate advisors in the organization to find out what their experience has been like, and then ask who would be my mentor, who would be my manager and see if you, you can interview them to understand how they approach it. And do you feel like they're really qualified and, and ready to invest the time into that growth? Yes. Because if you get you get into a situation where you've brought in 5, 10, 15, 20 million bucks into your senior advisor's practice and that senior advisor sort of doesn't allow you to take that next step. Uh, it's really stressful and it's it, it, it weighs on that planner in a way. It's like, wait, I think I can do this and I want to do this and my gut's telling me to do this, but I just don't have a way to do it unless I completely, you know, like jump off the cliff and hope the parachute opens and um, so it's really important to have that interview in, in that interview and in that research before you join an organization. Is that, is that where you're going to end up or, you know, is there a path to control your own destiny? And so how do you make sure that the advisors don't get stuck in, in your context, in your organization, when, when you've got that same scenario, the advisor, the CADs that's grown to 15 million and the senior advisor who doesn't necessarily want to lose them? Well, it's to pay it forward, and it goes back to that those values, right? It, it, if you have alignment of values, and you believe that paying it forward, and you and and, and you have um, that same mindset of we love to watch people grow, then it, it it doesn't really become an issue. So, as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success, and one of the things I've I've long observed is just the the word success means very different things to different people, and so you've built, I think, what anyone would objectively call very successful advisory businesses you cross I think two billion under management. So the the business is in a very good place. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Impact on people. Um, you know, I I just think that that's what gives gives me juice. 
you know, whether it's a senior advisor having their first grandchild or um, we have people getting engaged and married and having their first babies. I mean, uh, to be a small part of their world uh, during those times is just, uh, it's an honor. And I think uh, we should, as leaders in the industry, we should cherish those those opportunities. We get to, we get to see them with our clients often. Uh, but I also think, you know, for me, it's just, it's just a success. It's just being a part of, a part of that for people and sending the, you know, the text early in the morning and you get to pick a pick back of a, you know, the first or second child of from, straight from the hospital. I mean, those things are the fun parts of our business. And that's where, you know, I believe, um, you know, all success comes from. Uh, obviously, you know, there is, there is a business here and it's not all fluff and we have to, you know, we have to, uh, be successful in what we do in this endeavor. Um, and there are moments where we give massive celebrations to uh, our advisors and, uh, and their teams on, you know, client retention and new clients and growth and all those fun things. And, and that's, that's the fun part of the job. There's no doubt about it. And I love to watch people grow and, and build their books of business and, and do that sort of thing. And, um, you know, that's our day job, but the success part comes from the relationships we build while we get to do our day job. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ken, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure, Michael. Appreciate your time and everything you do for the industry. It's, uh, it's wonderful stuff. Thank you. I appreciate it. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.